Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. What's better? The last week of school before summer or the last week of summer before school? Some of you, you're in school now and can imagine this. Others, you've got to go back and remember. Elementary, middle, high school. When you think about that last week of school before summer, I know there are exceptions, but for most people, it can be a week of almost euphoric bliss. You are finishing up your finals. You're watching the clock in every class. You're ready for that final bell to ring so that you can Get out of there and get on with summer and the fun and the joy you're expecting to have in summer. Maybe you watch a movie in Spanish class. Things are kind of laid back. That's an enjoyable week of school. On the other hand, if you think about the last week of summer for most people, right before school starts again as you regret the things you had wished to do and now cannot, and you lament the last months that you've lost and you're preparing yourself to enter back into the world of Lockers and hallways that will be your portion for a long, long time. You can almost feel a sort of dread. You remember that or you're experiencing that? There is a principle in that dynamic that pretty much everyone experiences that's very important. Because if you were to ask the question, why? Why do we feel this way? Why is it that the last week of school feels pretty good? Last week of summer, not so much. And of course, it's because summer, you're expecting to do some fun stuff. You've got some freedom. Nobody's telling you to do homework. You're going to go do something. But if that's the reason why, then on the one hand, on a surface level, it doesn't make sense we'd feel like this. That last week of school, if what makes you excited is not being in school, why are you excited? Because you're in school. Thought of that? It's not summer yet. If it was just that we don't have to go to school, the last week of summer would be more exciting because the last week of summer, it is summer. You're not in school. The thing that makes the last week of school exciting is your anticipation of summer. It's not even summer. It's your anticipation of summer. And likewise, last week of summer is difficult, not because of school, but your anticipation of school. In the former case, this anticipation the Bible calls hope. And it is one of the most practical gifts that God has given to you as a Christian. It's the one that gets you through. And as you can see, it's a very powerful thing. There have been studies done about purchasing items people are excited to buy that have demonstrated at times the anticipation of buying the thing is actually making more happiness than when you actually buy the thing. It's the anticipation. It's not even there. It's just anticipating it. It's producing this kind of happiness in someone. What keeps today the soldiers and civilians of Ukraine fighting against massive odds is, among other things, a hope. It's an anticipation. If you're a Christian, this is your lot. This is what gets you through. Why is it that Christians, who are not in better circumstances than anybody else, why do they persevere with an abiding joy and a peace 
when you look around and behold, there is no peace except in Christians. Why? Why is it that we have in the book of Lamentations the weeping prophet with Jerusalem, his home city, besieged and in flames around him and massive slaughter and yet he can say in that book, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Never, not even now. Why do the trials of life hit a Christian in the gut and knock you down, and yet before the referee can make his count, you're back up and back in the fight? Why? It's not easy. It's because of hope. Never minimize the effectiveness and the power of hope. You see it every day, but for the Christian, it's your very life. Look, if you're a believer here this morning, I want to give you the last page of the story. Your story ends well. I promise. It might not be well right now. You might have to go through quite a lot of trials, rising actions that are very unpleasant, conflicts, but your story ends well. And we can say with more confidence than any English bard, all's well that ends well. It produces right now in us a joy and a peace. It's not 50-50. It's not like you hope it will end well. It's not like plugging in one of those old USB cords, 50-50. Maybe it's going to go in. That's not the kind of hope you have. You have a certain hope. Things end well for you. And that's what drives you in this life. I'm mentioning all of this because as we get to the end of chapter 3 in Philippians, and Paul has been fighting against these false teachers known as Judaizers, it's this hope that he chooses to throw in as the conclusion to his entire argument. So let's see that. We just saw at the end of last week in verse 19 that these false teachers fix their minds on earthly things. And now our text begins with but, in verses 20, 21. But, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So that is a fitting conclusion to Paul's appeal for you not to listen to any of the nonsense of false teachers who have a form of Christianity that fixates you on this world. Don't do that. The Judaizers had a carrot on a stick that they were trying to lead the Philippian saints away from Paul and the gospel with. And even though it was a religious carrot, if you will, on that stick, it was a carrot that focused on this world. It was taking their eyes off of Christ and eternity and focusing on this world. For them, the Judaizers, it was a preoccupation, first of all, with the external worldly rituals of the Jewish religion. It was circumcision washings, dietary restrictions, these had, many of them, been valid under the Old Covenant, but Jesus at the Last Supper said, this cup is the cup of the New Covenant. And in Jesus' death brought a New Covenant. And now those rituals found their fulfillment in Christ. But the Judaizers came in because they were earthly-minded. They couldn't get beyond the shadows 
to what everything pointed to. They were still, even after Jesus came, the Lamb of God came, they were still focused on the earthly lamb. They were still focused on the washings and the diet and the rituals in the symbols because they were earthly-minded. Paul would, we can see in the way he speaks in chapter 3, say that they put their confidence in the flesh, a way of referring to the body and what we can do with the body, circumcised, do things, eat things. But we saw last week that these Judaizers, their worldly-mindedness didn't just stop at their religiosity. It extended beyond that into their irreligiosity, their immorality even, because last week he spoke of their God being their belly, their appetite, their bodily desires. And then he concluded by saying their minds are set on earthly things. So both in their being very religious, it's earthly, and many people's religion is just worldly ritual. But for them also, behind the scenes perhaps, they were focused on the body and the earth, fulfilling themselves with pleasures. That's why this text is beginning at the conclusion of Paul warning against them with, but these false teachers, in other words, were looking straight down at this earth, at this world. That's their interest. And Paul says, but not you. That's not the kind of life you are called to live. You are called to look up and to look ahead. Not here. Not here. Up and ahead. So today, those are the two headings under which we're going to consider what Paul says in these two verses. First, that if you're a Christian, you are called to look up, not down, up. And secondly, if you're a Christian, you're called to look ahead, not right now, but ahead. So let's see that as we jump into this text. By beginning, by considering how Paul urges the Philippians and you to live a life looking upward. Look at verse 20. It begins, but our citizenship is where? Here? Here? Right here? No. Your citizenship, where you really belong, is there. It's in heaven. Now, the but that begins this passage, uh, in the original, it's actually the word that we usually translate for. And I think what Paul intends here, it is a contrast, but what he means is he's been warning you, listen, don't get swept away by these Judaizers. Don't get taken away and taken in by these nominal Christians who are trying to get you to focus on joy and glory in this world. Don't do it. Why? Why shouldn't you do that? For, because, this world's not your home. For, but, for, your citizenship somewhere else. So don't listen to these false teachers. You Christian have no business settling for some kind of nominal, earth-focused Christianity. And there are many varieties today, just like there were back then. These are just puddles of Christianity that you splash in when God offers you the ocean. Heaven itself. He's saying, don't look here on this world. Don't make your focus here. That's not your citizenship. After all, isn't that sort of a Christianity, which maybe some of you come out of this background or are in this sort of, when I say nominal, I mean it doesn't affect your life, except Sunday morning because you have to get up early. But beyond that, it doesn't really change what you would be if you weren't Christian. 
If your Christianity doesn't change you, then you need to change your Christianity. <laughs> it's the wrong kind. That's what Paul's saying. Not an earthly kind. Your citizenship is not on earth. It is in heaven. Don't live your life looking down. Look up. What does this mean that your citizenship is in heaven? It means, first of all, that your citizenship is not ultimately on earth. So if, if Paul is calling you to live a life looking upward every day, you can't look up and down at the same time. So you're either going to live like this, looking down, or you're going to live like this, looking up. So don't do this. <laughs> he says your citizenship is in heaven very intentionally to the Philippians, just like he does to us. Because the Philippians, to give you just a little bit of background for their context 2,000 years ago, the city of Philippi, it had been around for a long time, but Rome had been very specific in what they designated the city as. There were two great battles that had taken place just a few decades before Jesus' time. These great battles, afterward, Octavian, the Roman emperor of that time, he won the battles. And afterward, he took the soldiers who fought these battles, Roman soldiers, and he settled them in the city of Philippi. And why would he do that? Because that would guarantee loyalty to Rome. Because, <laughs> you know, if you fight for a country, you're more likely to be loyal to that country you're fighting for. And Octavian knew this. So he settles these retired soldiers after these great battles take place, and he makes Philippi a Roman military colony. That means nothing really to us, but it meant a lot to Philippi back in the day, because if you were a military colony in that time, every person born in your city was automatically a Roman citizen. To be a Roman citizen in the ancient world when Rome ruled the world meant a lot. It meant a lot of safety. It meant you had rights that other people did not have. So Philippi, if you were living in Philippi, and we Christians, of course, are being called out of the world and out of society and its evil ways, but we're influenced by where we live. And we can't doubt that the Philippian Christians had some degree of influence living in Philippi so proud to be Roman. That's their citizenship now, there's no problem being on earth a citizen of a nation. It's, it's a wonderful thing. In fact, Paul, you remember, in the book of Acts, has no qualms about pulling out his citizenship card when he's being mistreated by the Romans to protect himself and even to appeal to Caesar. That was the right of a Roman citizen. And Paul, being born in Antioch, had Roman citizenship. So Paul didn't despise it. We're not saying, oh, if you're a citizen of the United States, you can't be that anymore. That's not what Paul's saying, because Paul was a citizen of Rome. We're not saying that. And yet, look how he puts it in our text. Our citizen, are, including Paul's, who was a Roman citizen. Our citizenship is in heaven. It doesn't mean you don't have any citizenship on earth, but it does mean your citizenship on earth does not matter as much as your citizenship in heaven. Paul did not take deep pride in being a Roman, although he was. That wasn't where he found his whole identity. He made use of it. To Paul, he took great pride and identified himself as someone who belonged in heaven. Just to pause here, there's been a lot of talk these days, and you've heard it, about Christian nationalism. 
And people use that phrase differently, so please, if someone brings that up, ask them to define what they mean. <laughs> Sometimes people use Christian nationalism as a way of describing Christians who appreciate some of the good in their nation, nationalism. If someone means it simply as a Christian who has an interest in American history, appreciates that God somehow has done many good things, given liberties and rights and freedoms that we don't see in other parts of the world, if that's what we mean by Christian nationalism, that's fine. That's, that's probably just very healthy. Honor those in authority and be grateful for the good God's given, okay? On the other hand, some people use the phrase Christian nationalism to refer to a sort of addiction to your nation that does not allow you to see when your nation may do wrong. I'm not trying to be political here, I promise you. But what Paul is saying here is, to the Philippians, proud to be Romans, however you think of your nation, however you think of your citizenship there, you don't have to renounce it, but you have to think of it in a way that never elevates it above your citizenship in heaven. Even if you live in a great country or a terrible country or whatever, your citizenship in heaven is the primary citizenship you have. Anything else you have? Secondary. This is the primary thing. I'm not making, you see that in the text? I promise I'm not making that up. You see how he said that? Our, where's our citizenship? It's in heaven. That's what he's emphasizing. The reason that's important has nothing to do with political side discussions that you could go into now that we're not going to go into now. The reason that's mainly important for you to know is because if you don't believe that, you can't have a lasting hope. Because no matter how great your country may be, it does not provide you ultimately a complete security, a complete stability. And if you are looking to your country to provide that for you, it won't do it. There will always be an uncertainty, and we feel that now more than ever, there will always be an uncertainty. Your country, just like anything, doesn't matter if it's your country or a group you belong to or a hobby you participate in or a romantic relationship that you have, whatever it is, if you're looking to that for your hope, if you put your primary emphasis there and hope to find security and fulfillment for your life, you know as well as I do, you're not going to find it. And even if you do for a short season, it can always be taken away. That's why Paul says, don't look straight down. Don't make this primary where you are right now on earth. It's not primary. Your primary emphasis in your life when it comes to your citizenship, it's in heaven. The Judaizers were looking straight down, setting their minds on earthly things. You cannot do that. And in case you think I'm being too shocking, let me read you something more shocking than anything I've said, which comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. They were facing persecution, and he told them, this is how you need to think about your day-to-day -day life. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Christ is returning soon. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world 
is passing away. Maybe you want me to soften that now with some caveats. I'm not going to do it. Sorry. That's what Paul says. And it's stated very strongly on purpose. What Paul is getting at is don't live like this, looking down. You won't find hope there. Instead, live like this, looking up. If our citizenship is not ultimately here, your citizenship is here, and that's better. It's in heaven, he says there in the text. And do you really want your hope in this life to be literally anywhere else? Give me one thing on this earth, no matter how firmly nailed down it may be, that you can place your whole hope upon and not have the lingering uncertainty of it being stripped away from you. Jesus said, don't store up your treasures here. Because why? A moth can destroy that beautiful blouse that you bought and were so excited about, and now it is ruined. Or you got that new HDMI TV, whatever it is. Wow, exciting, and tonight a thief breaks in, and now he's watching it at his house. Rust comes in and ruins whatever it is you love. So where do you want to put your comfort, your security, and your hope in this life? It's uncertain every time. Paul concludes that shocking passage with four. Don't do that. Don't trust those things because this present form of this world is passing away. We don't want our hope to be in our jobs. Your job can be shaken tomorrow. Your family, I hope you find great comfort in your family. Your family can be shaken tomorrow. Your church can be shaken tomorrow. Where is your hope? Hebrews chapter 12, 28 tells us, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And where is this kingdom? In heaven. And no one's touching it. Russia can't touch it. You can't touch it. The boss who's treating you terribly, he's not touching it. The family, extended family member who's spiting you and won't talk to you, they can't touch it. Nothing can shake it. So where do you want your hope to be? You want it to be on earth? <laughs> Certainly not. You want it to be in heaven, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, which God will one day bring down to earth for us. You may wonder, okay, practically, what does it look like to keep my focus up and live as a citizen of heaven and not ultimately of the earth? We don't have time to go into every detail. A lot of that's just a question of how you live the Christian life. But if you want just one quick test to know if you're doing this, here's one. When your earthly reasons for joy and peace are few, does your joy and your peace continue? If your joy and your peace depend upon the earthly reasons for it, a nice job, a good income, a good savings account, solid family, good church life, easy relationships with others, nice work environment, hope for the future here on earth, good retirement fund, good nest egg, stock market's doing pretty well, wars are not happening. If those are the things that are producing joy and make you wake up smiling and glad for the day, and when those, as they've been doing, <laughs> Go down and down and down, and you also lose your joy, lose your peace, don't want to get out of bed. 
Look, we all struggle, so I'm not pointing a condemning finger. We all struggle. But if you want to know to what degree you're really believing this passage of Scripture, when you have a joy that can weep tears, because even Jesus wept, but even through tears, it feels, it persists, it survives. It's not stamped out when other earthly reasons for it go away. Then we have to conclude, wow, what's that joy based upon? There's nothing here to build it on. There's nothing to set it on anymore. It's in heaven. It's based upon your future hope. That is the joy of a Christian. That's hope. That's anticipation that produces in us. Even though we haven't seen Jesus, Peter writes. You don't see him now. You haven't seen him. Yet you, Peter says, you now rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. Did you wake up like that this morning? (laughs) Me neither, but we're working on it because that is what this passage calls us to. Because the fact is, whatever happened in the news this week, and we should care about it, did it change anything about your country in heaven? Were any borders redrawn? Any riches plundered? Any safety security removed? Were the walls of the heavenly Jerusalem battered down? Is there any threat to the king who sits within that city? Who will open those great gates of pearl and welcome you into your ultimate and eternal dwellings? Is there any problem up there? (laughs) No. And if that's where your hope is, your hope's still alive this morning. Nothing has happened to it. Her walls are strong, her king is within her, and she shall never be moved. It's good to be a citizen of heaven. So, maybe this week has gotten you looking here, understandably. But understandably or not, you have to stop doing that. And your focus has to be here. Looking up. Now, that's the first point here. Look up. The second point is, and it will be the rest of our text, Paul says don't just look up, but look ahead, forward, in front of you, speaking of the future, look ahead. Look at that in our text. Our citizenship is in heaven, so that's up above us, look up there. But the rest of this is about the future. And from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, future, Transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Here's the good part and the bad part of being a Christian. You have to wait. It's good because if you had your best life right now, Well, that'd be terrible. (laughs) So we're glad we're waiting for something better. But it's bad because you're waiting. It's not here yet. You know that. Christians wait. That's the word he uses here. From heaven, we await. We await. And notice that little helping verb that's very important. Jesus will transform your body to be like his. But that will, that means it hasn't happened yet. It's in the future. It's ahead of you. But it's not here yet. You know that. Just like you can't look up 
and look down at the same time. You can't look ahead with hope and focus right here and now at the same time. You've got to choose where your focus will be, here, here. Your life, if you focus it here, right now, immediately, and that's all you see, it's not going to be good. And you know that even from our text because look what Paul says is true of your body right here and now. What kind of a body do you have? He will transform our lowly body, literally our body of lowliness with the idea of even shame, our body of shame that we live in now. So if all you have in your mind through the week is what's happening right here, right now, and you're not looking over there, you're looking here, then all you have is a lowly body. (laughs) And that's not good. You know, this isn't good. You don't want that to be everything you're thinking about. Look, it's no wonder you're depressed. That's what you're thinking about. Then you should be depressed. That's what Paul says. Right now, we have a lowly body. And our whole life is characterized by that. So you go out and when you're younger, have great hopes for your life and your future. And you go out there and try to accomplish them. And through a series of disappointments, you don't. (laughs) You ever experienced that? It's because you're in a lowly body. So you want that to be your ultimate hope and joy? No. No, you don't. Or you've got great, great plans. And then you get married, and you're planning to do all of these exciting things. This isn't autobiographical. It's not thinking of another couple I'm aware of. But you get married, and you're excited, and then she gets sick. And you're not doing any of those things on your bucket list. You really want that to be everything your life is. Looking right here, right now. Or you've got great friends and a great friend group. And man, things are going well. And then that falls apart. And you want that loneliness you have to be everything you have? Certainly not. You want the here and now to be everything? You can't live a joyful Christian life in a fog Meaning, you can't penetrate through it to see ahead to the future that God promises that gives you hope. If you can't see that, it's all masked and all you can see day after day when you wake up, when you go to work, as you're raising your children, all you can see is the disappointments and the pains and the lower back ache and everything of this day to day. And that's it. End of story. You will lose heart. That's not the way you're meant to live your Christian life. Here and now. Now hope, Paul writes in Romans 8. Now hope that is seen. What I'm seeing, that's everything. Hope that's seen, it's not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, it's over there, beyond the fog, okay. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Don't look here just because it's immediate. We're waiting because our hope is ahead of us. It's not right here, right now. So don't look here, but look ahead. Now, you might be a little bit afraid to look ahead. Maybe you've tried not to because you're afraid of things that may happen in the future. So you're just living day by day. There is some wisdom in this that Jesus talks about. Tomorrow will take care of itself. So don't worry about tomorrow. So that's okay, okay. But even taking that advice... If you are trying to fixate just on immediately what's happening because you're afraid of even thinking about the future, 
it's going to be hard for you. What you need to do is obey this text because notice that in this text, he doesn't tell you to look ahead 10 years from now on this earth. He doesn't tell you, I know things are hard right now, but probably in five years, your job will improve, your family life will get better, your disease may be cured or go away, you'll probably be doing better. He doesn't say that. So he's telling you, you need to look ahead, but we don't look far enough ahead. We're looking ahead like, if I get through this hard season, then there's hope. No, if I get through this hard life, because what he's pointing you to look ahead to is beyond this very life to the life to come. From heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, not in this life, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is to come. He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. What does it mean to look ahead? It means that you remember that Jesus died in shame, but He rose in honor. And Jesus died in weakness, but Paul says he rose in power. And he was the first fruits. That's what Jesus is called with his resurrection. Because you bring in the first fruits and you know the harvest is coming. You're the harvest. Did Jesus raise from the dead? Do you believe that he did? It's not any harder to believe that you will too. Because even here we're told that your resurrection body that you will get when you're transformed, it will be like Jesus' resurrection body. So if you as a Christian profess to believe that Jesus lived a hard life and was resurrected and exalted and lives today in heaven with no sickness, no problems on his body, then you have to also believe logically what follows that you are going to experience just the same thing. His was the down payment. His was to make it clear and obvious that this is quite doable from God's point of view, and God will do it in your case too. His resurrection is the pattern of your resurrection. Jesus died but didn't stay that way. You're going to die, but you're not going to stay that way. Think about Jesus in heaven, because Paul 1 Corinthians 15 also says that just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, just as we now live weak because we're in Adam, We've been in Adam and we bear his image. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. Think right now. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in his body. Is Jesus feeling a lump on his neck and wondering, is that cancerous? Does he have any of those worries? Does Jesus feel a lower back pain that's getting worse and worse? Does he feel a tingling in his fingers and wondering, hmm, what could that be? Is Jesus getting older and his body's wearing out? Is that happening to him right now? No. Praise God, no. No. Jesus is in heaven and he is afflicted with our affliction. Still, he feels in some sense the pains that we feel here on earth, but he doesn't feel them for himself. He doesn't worry about his health or his body because his body is, what does the text say? Glorious. It's the body of his glory. That's what it's saying in the text. It's not a lowly body. He had one of those. Not anymore. You've got one of those, but you won't. You will have your body transformed. It's still going to be you, but it's going to be transformed to be like his glorious body. 10,000 years from now, you'll say, do you remember how 10,000 years ago, we used to talk, what was that, what was that called? Uh, 
can was it cancer? It's called cancer. Do you remember that? Because it's not going to be in heaven. COVID doesn't touch a glorious body. It doesn't have any effect. You're not going to get viruses. You're not going to get bacteria. You're not going to be hospitalized. I know we've got a lot of hospital workers. You're almost obsolete. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But thanks for what you're doing now. But we're all going to have glorious bodies. And we're not going to need that anymore. That's what the text is saying. That's what we're looking ahead toward. Paul says, what is raised is imperishable. It is raised in glory. It is raised, your body, in power. And it is raised a spiritual body, not meaning you don't have a physical body, but that the Holy Spirit empowers you, brings you to life, animates you in a way that makes you unable to die or perish in any sense. If your body was imperishable, glorious, powerful, spirit-empowered right now, and if the bodies of all the people you most love in this world were exactly the same, how many of your fears would go away? A lot. Most all of them. So Paul is saying, don't look here where our bodies do die and do perish. Look ahead, because it's not going to last. Things are going to change. Things are going to get better for us, ahead of us. Now, you might be thrilled to get just such a body, and even with that last question I asked, you might think, yeah, I think a lot of my fears would go away if my body couldn't get hurt or killed or anything. But I think some of my fears would remain because a lot of your deepest anguishes are not just your physical condition. A lot of the worst of your anguish is seeing the injustice in the world. It's seeing relationships sour. It's the confusion of people acting wrongly and you wondering if you're acting rightly. It's sin. It's evil in the world. Isn't that a lot of the anguish that you feel? And even if you were to perfect your body and have a glorious body today, if those things are still there, you go on grieving and feeling a weight. You've seen some of the movies that imagine a person who can live forever, like Tuck Everlasting or something like that. And they can live forever, but they're still stricken with grief because there are more pains than physical in this world. So does that mean you have no hope? Well, did you see the end of our text? It's a fantastic end of our text because look what he says. The power that Jesus will use to fix your body is the same power, quote, that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We are not just looking forward to glorious bodies, but to glorious bodies in a glorious world where there are no more wars, there's no more evil, there's no more relationship tension, there's no more awkward encounters with someone you've had an issue in the past and now it's awkward and you don't know what to do with your hands or with yourself. It's not going to happen anymore. All of those things smoothed over because Jesus is going to take all of them and force them under his feet, like Psalm 8 says. All things go under his feet. So we're not just happy to get bodies that are finally doing the right thing, but we're happy to get a world that's finally doing the right thing and to have your own sin eradicated as well because you also go under Jesus' feet, subjected fully to him. That's the hope that we have, that this will happen. It is a power that enables him. He can do it. He's going to subject all things to himself. Scripture says he must reign, he's reigning now, until he does that. And death will be the very last one that goes under there and is squashed. It's going to happen. 
You want a description, really, as we're trying to look ahead here to really know what are we looking ahead to. Here it is. Paul, Romans 8 again. I consider the sufferings of this time aren't worth comparing. Don't compare them. Not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us because the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation will be set free, Paul says, when you and I, the church, are set free from our body of death. Then creation is set free from futility, and I promise you, it's going to be a good time. You're going to love it, and it's ahead of you. So what you're going through now may be horrible, probably is horrible, but don't look here. We are waiting for a Savior And a Savior saves. He pulls you out of horrible things. We're looking ahead to His return. Where are you looking today? You're looking somewhere, you know. You looking down? Are you looking here? And you're overwhelmed? Then you need to stop. Trust the Lord with those things. You need to look up. That's where you belong, not here. You need to look ahead. Because it's going to be very good, even if it's not right now. Here and now you have trouble? Up ahead? You don't. You don't. Here and now, life is uncertain. Up ahead, your kingdom is unshakable. Here and now, you see dimly your faith strains to believe even smallest parts of the gospel. Up ahead, your faith will be your sight. Here and now, You do not see everything subject to Christ. You find co-workers and others mocking Christ. Up ahead, every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here and now, your body is lowly and it's deteriorating and it's falling apart. But up ahead, it is a glorious body conformed to Christ's own physical existence. And it will persist that way on into eternity. We are still in school, but it's the last week of school. And summer's coming. So let us encourage one another with these words. Let me pray. Lord, we are eagerly anticipating what lies on the other side of the trial of death or of your return. Because we groan in these bodies. We don't want to be here. Like Paul, we would much rather depart and be with you better. But while we are here, you do have purposes for us, so we are content to be here. But I pray you would help us not to grieve like those who have no hope in the world, whose minds are set on earthly things and whose bellies rule them. But help us, Lord, to live above that and to have a joy that cannot be crushed because it depends upon a heavenly inheritance that cannot be touched. Please give us this kind of hope and joy as we wrestle to believe all your promises, especially now as things are so challenged here on earth. I pray you'd use this trial for our good, the good of your believers around the world, in the Ukraine, in Russia, and anywhere, that this would be something to shake them up and awaken them and awaken us to where our hope truly lies. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.